Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is the CEO of the music tech company, Super Hi-Fi, Zach Zalon. First of all, let's talk about Apple music prices all over the world. Now, Apple is preferred by a lot of people, especially if you own an iPhone, because there's better compatibility for one thing, but there's also a lot more songs and better integration with your personal library. That being said, in different countries all over the world, there's actually vastly different prices. Give you an example. In Denmark, for instance, it costs the equivalent of $15.50 per month. The United States, of course, is $9.99. In India, it's only $1.32. In Mexico, $4.44. Most of Central and South America is $5.99, while Africa is mostly $2.99. In Europe, we're looking anywhere from $5.99 a month to $15.50 in Denmark, except for Russia, which is $2.36 a month. In the Middle East, we're looking at $4.99 In Asia, like I said before, India is the cheapest, and it's the cheapest anywhere in the world, $1.32 per month. China's only $1.43, where in New Zealand, we're looking at $9.96. So, why the differences in all these different countries? For one thing, there's a difference in currency value. So, that makes a big difference. When you figure out what it might cost in the U.S. and what the equivalent is, there's a big difference. But more than anything, what Apple tries to do is make the price proportional to the average monthly earnings of a person in that particular country. For instance, in the U.S., $9.99 is about 0.23% of a person's average monthly income. In Nicaragua, however, it's almost 4%, and in Africa and Niger, it's 11%, so you can see why there's not many people who be subscribing there. This is another reason why all streams aren't created equally or pay equally, because in different parts of the world, of course, there's not a whole lot of money being generated in comparison to what's happening in the United States and in Europe and in some places in Asia. So the big takeaway here is that everywhere in the world is paying a different amount, but in the end, it's all sort of the same. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Musicians and artists everywhere have been hit hard by the coronavirus, and there hasn't been too many governments that have actually stepped up to help them. That being said, right now there's a bill in Congress. It's House Act 7886, known as the HITS Act, Help Independent Tracks Succeed Act. This is a bipartisan bill sponsored by two senators, a Republican and a Democrat, and two House members, also a Republican and Democrat. Now, what the HITS Act really is about is allowing any artist, any producer, any musician who's doing production work to write off the cost of that production in the year that it's made. 
Now you might think, well, wait a second, doesn't this happen already? No, it doesn't. And in fact, it's even worse because film and theater and television productions can deduct all their production costs in the same year. But when it came to music, that wasn't the case. Hopefully this is going to change and it's going to change really soon as this bill is in Congress now and it looks like it has some good headway. So hopefully that will really help some artists when it comes to tax time. And speaking of production costs, Iceland now is offering a Record in Iceland Act where you can get back up to 25% of all the costs that you spent producing your record in Iceland. I was kind of curious about this, so I looked to see exactly what kind of recording facilities are in Iceland. And in fact, there are seven world-class studios there. Iceland is also a place that people just love to go. If you're a partier, (laughs) it's a great place during the winter because night never stops. But that being said, now you can actually record somewhat on the cheap, save some money by going to Iceland. So these two things might help out artists in the new year. We could use some other help as well. We'll see if that's forthcoming. My guest this week is Zach Zalon, who started his music business career as the general manager of the legendary Troubadour Club in Los Angeles. From there, Zach became president of Virgin Digital and then managing partner of We See Dragons an agency designing digital platforms for clients like the National Geographic, Comcast, Citibank, and more. In 2018, Zach co-founded Super Hi-Fi, a company with technology that allows its AI-driven audio platform to intelligently and seamlessly stitch together music and other audio content in digital delivery channels. Current partners include Peloton, iHeartRadio, the Associated Press, and Universal Music Group. During our interview, we talked about differentiating between music platforms, using the techniques of radio and streaming, why streaming audio quality doesn't matter as much as you might think, and much more. I spoke with Zach via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. How did you start in the music business? Well, I I started in the music business a really long time ago. So uh, I guess the business side of it, I started running the Troubadour um, back in my early 20s. And so I, I managed the nightclub, booked a lot of bands, kind of ran the ran the whole thing for a short period of time. I thought maybe, you know, the natural path would be some sort of a booking agent, which is where a lot of people kind of start, you know, at clubs like that, move their way into one of the agencies. But I really quickly found some something called the internet early on, and I jumped uh, as quickly as I could and started to build all kinds of, back then it was websites mostly and other digital strategies for record labels, artists, people like that. And tried to stay as close to the music side as I could while still really pushing for interactive, which is what I loved doing. What actually got you started on that side of it? Because it's a different brain that you're using. Um, I don't know if it really is. I mean, ultimately my desire was to participate in some influence in the music space. You know, I really, I had been a musician. I really believed in booking, uh, booking the artists that I did. I worked with a whole lot of artists really closely and kind of watched as the space was evolving. And when I found digital, I found it to be what I thought was going to be the, the, the biggest thing that, uh, that could really exist. So um, in terms of the influence that it would have over artists' careers, you know, I'll tell you, I, I was reading just this morning, I was actually reading in 
I think the New York Times, there was an article and it, it, it was it was really talking about um, it was talking about how early, early on some of the influences that uh, the digital music space had, like people who were really like Mark Geiger, as an example, was, was the primary guy inside of this. I don't know if you know who Mark is, but it was really kind of talking about how early he was and how some of the early, early influences of the digital music space are only now starting to come to fruition. And I remember sitting in the office at the Troubadour with Mark Geiger back 25 years ago and having him talk about this concept of a celestial jukebox. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but. Oh yeah. And, and he was the first person I ever heard to, to reference that term and described it as kind of like all you can eat, grabbing whatever music files you want and being able to access whatever artists you want to listen to. And, you know, it took 20 plus years before the model started to work itself out that way. I think I kind of saw something similar, right? I remember hearing that and being really influenced by it and being like, wow, man, this is where things are really going to go. And so I jumped in to the deep end of the pool with interactive. Again, I don't know if it's a different brain. I think it's really the same goal, which is to influence the music space in some meaningful way to help to impact artists' careers in some way. It's just the goal of getting there is not for me to, you know, to, to sell tickets to a show. It's for a long time now, it's really been to create new opportunities for consumers to experience the artists of their choice in the way that they want to be able to experience them. Okay, from there, you went to Virgin Digital, right? Yeah, so my business partner and I, Today, a guy named Brendan Cassidy. We've been working together for almost 21 years. We actually started as the first two employees of a short-lived internet record label that uh, Jimmy Iovine had started called farmclub.com. I remember. But we didn't didn't really want to do that. We kind of believed that entertainment, uh, like lean back entertainment, was the wave of the future. I, by that point, had been in interactive for four or five years. And I really kind of felt like the broadcast radio space was going to make a move into the digital space. And so we wrote a business plan that Richard Branson funded, which became Virgin Digital. And we ended up running that for about seven years. And that was really any of Virgin's global streaming music experiences were under our portfolio. And it was fantastic. We got to build a lot of really great things. We got to build some consumer experiences that were really successful, like Radio Free Virgin, which was one of the first streaming radio services. Um, And unfortunately, I think we were kind of early and also the music business was changing really dramatically. So, you know, we were also on the board of the Virgin Megastores and the Megastores were basically going from being a very meaningful, very profitable business to trying to figure out its way around. And when, when the Megastores were starting to get sold, they were sold off in the UK, we saw the writing on the wall. We basically handed off the keys back to Branson and set up a digital agency to do for other people what we had done for Richard for all those years. That was We See Dragons, right? Yeah, it was our digital agency, which at the time when we changed our name a couple of times, but we kept doing the same thing. And it, you know, we got to build a lot of digital music platforms for a lot of people, which was great. I mean, we built CBS Radio's consumer streaming platform. We built AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast back when those were brands that mattered. I think one of the products that we were most proud of is when Cricket Wireless of all companies hired us to design and develop an early subscription music platform called Move Music. Yes. And Move Music was really cool because it was built into the handset and built into your rate plan. And it was focused on low-income consumers, folks who, for the most part, actually didn't have a credit card or or a computer. They would stand in line and basically pay cash for their 
own subscription every month. And with that, we were able to give them a really high quality music experience that we were really proud of. And that was actually very successful for Cricket until Cricket ultimately sold their whole platform off to AT&T. So we've been building all these digital music experiences for years. And I'll tell you that the thing that frustrated us the most throughout that period was that no matter how much time or energy we put into building these products, and no matter how innovative they might have been from an interface or business model standpoint, if you closed your eyes, you couldn't really tell the difference between what we had built and what anybody else had built. In other words, the music experience, when 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 taken out of the when you when you abstract it from the visual interface that you have, was really no different. And that really kind of stuck with us for a long time. It was a frustration that we had with our own products. And honestly, it was a frustration we had with the industry in general, just that you have all these fantastic music experiences, whether it's Spotify or Pandora or Apple or Amazon or any of the others that are out there, but they're still indistinguishable from one another when it comes to what's coming out of your speaker. And the problem with services that have no differentiation, no identifiable differentiation from one another is that they ultimately become commodities and a world of commodities is just a race to the bottom on price. And so at some point a few years ago, we decided we wanted to do something about that. We were like, you know, we, we believe that broadcast radio has some of the keys to solving this. In that broadcast radio has the same challenges as digital music does, right? They're, they're saddled with the same music, the same relative sound quality for the same effective price, which is that you have to listen to ads. And in, and in the same delivery medium, basically in the car. And yet they've been able to establish real differentiation, right? Like the, the proof being that in any major market, there are always two or more radio stations that play the exact same playlist of content. They're literally the same playlists, but yet one of those stations invariably does twice the amount of listening, twice the amount of revenue. And the only reason why is it can't be the music because it's the same music as everybody else. So it has to be the, the, the techniques they use to power the space between the songs. It's their DJs and the voices, the personalities they have, maybe the morning show. It's the way they present that content. It's artist interviews, access to exclusive content. It's all the different components of broadcast radio allow one service to be really competitive with another. And we felt that if we could figure out how to integrate that into the digital landscape, we could give services the same opportunity to differentiate and to compete on qualities that go beyond just the music, uh, the music component, the music aspects themselves. And so that's why we started Super Hi-Fi. We started it with a goal of really creating better listening experiences out in the landscape. You know, I'm glad you went there because when I was doing some research on this, I looked at the Super Hi-Fi site and it dawned on me, well, wait a second, this is bringing radio style programming to streaming services. It's really that simple, right? The, it's like, hey, if we could do this the way they do it on radio, it could be really cool. And it doesn't have to sound like radio. We're not talking about making it sound like radio. We're talking about using the techniques of radio DJs to be able to bring some of these, these experiences to life, to turn services from playlists with gaps into storytelling devices that are well presented. But you can't, you can't do it the same way you do it on radio, right? On radio, it's great because you have one DJ that's kind of configuring a linear broadcast that millions of people can tap into. In the digital space, for every million people that listen, there are literally a million different experiences that are delivered. They are discrete one-to-one -one experiences. And so you can't pre-program anything. You have to have really smart tools to be able to do that. 
we had had, uh, our agency had grown, by the way, just to back up a little bit, our agency had grown by expanding outside of the universe of music. And we ended up doing a lot of very high scale uh, digital transformation projects for lots of Fortune 500 companies. So a good example would be we had done all of the consumer mobile apps for National Geographic. We built out Johnson & Johnson's global diabetes platform management app, which is to this day is still the most widely used in the world. Uh, we built sports platforms for the Knicks and the Rangers and, and Madison Square Garden for the Dolan family, and even consumer financial platforms for companies like Citibank and Experian. And one of the things that we learned along the line was how to use AI in a really novel way that's extremely high scale, but delivers exactly what you want it to deliver. Best example of that was for J&J when we were doing the diabetes app. We learned that you know, we were using AI to match recommendations to individual consumers based on the specific progression of their disease. And we used the data from blood glucose meters to be able to inform that. We could actually see over time what the blood glucose levels were of the different patients that J&J's service was serving. And so you'd want to give them specific recommendations that would help them manage it. But when you do that, you're technically a medical device that falls under the purview of the FDA. And if you give somebody the wrong piece of advice, the FDA will shut it down and J&J will get sued. So we had to come up with tools that algorithmically matched the right recommendations to the right consumers at extremely high scale, uh, but did it perfectly. And it was those kinds of lessons that we learned in building really sophisticated algorithms that allowed us to kind of have, I guess you'd call it the courage to try to build what we ultimately built into super hi-fi. Because at the time, there was just nothing that could do it. There were no open source tools we could find that would let us do it. And so we relied on the engineering skills that we had built building those really high-scale consumer platforms to create what ultimately became super hi-fi. Okay, so here's a question for you, and I'm wondering how this actually plays into what you're doing. Back when radio was king, songs had long intros, instrumental intros and outros, and they were built in specifically so that DJs could talk over them. So you had 10 seconds on an intro and an outro outro being a fade and since we've gone to streaming that's no longer required so now you find that songs are a lot shorter and they don't have those intros and outros they have a hard ending and and usually you're starting right on the chorus even so songwriting has changed a lot does that change the way you present things and would it change the way if Things went back to the way they were with long intros and outros. How would that affect what you do? Well, yes and no. So let me start by just saying that the way that Super Hi-Fi has been modeled, the AI for song transitions, as an example, understands any kind of content with the same depth and dexterity as a trained human DJ. So if you have these long sweeping ins and outs, you can have some really beautiful, very artful overlaps, as an example, right? Whether it's, whether it's the songs segueing over long periods of time or a DJ voice track coming up and actually talking over the song, the AI can do that, both selecting the content and presenting it that way. If you have content that's really tight, like it's just a cold end and a cold start that's designed for particular listeners, right? Modern streaming music listeners, 
the system can still treat it with the same artful respect. It's just going to sound very different. And if you have a voice track, it's going to happen between the songs instead of over the songs. And it's not going to overlap almost anything. But here, so, so A, just from a functional standpoint, it doesn't really matter what the songs are. A, the AI can figure out how to create a transition and get rid of all those silences between the tracks in a way that still sounds pretty good. But here's what's kind of interesting. You know, the number one form of lean back entertainment in music is today. Like when I talk about lean back, I mean, you're not actually just going and listening to an album. You're saying, hey, play me a, a style or a radio station or a playlist. Um, it's classic rock um, by a pretty big margin, especially as you get into, you know, old, slightly older demographics. The classic rock songs still have the same beautiful sweeping beginnings and ends that they always had. And so we have just as much of an opportunity today to present uh, to present creative listening experiences as DJs had in 1978. Because a lot of the music that's being listened to was recorded before 1978, and we get to kind of play around with that. So that's been fun for us. I should also say there are lots of different music styles that I think are underrepresented when we talk about modern music. A lot of Latin music, as an example, modern Latin music or country music actually has more sweeping intros and outros, right? That, that they still have a kind of almost... 1980s production style to them in some respects that gives the AI the opportunity to present really almost like epic listening moments, if you will. And so we're not just relegated to providing pop music where the chorus is just popping right in a half second from the beginning of the song. Although again, if that's what we get, we can process it pretty artfully. Is your AI selecting the songs or is it integrating with the AI on the platform? Not selecting the songs. So we're not music programmers at all. Um, what we do is work with our customers who do the music programming. They do all the curation, whether it's through their own algorithms or human curated. And we help them to convert those into what sound like fully produced listening experiences. Now, what we do select is the other content. So for instance, you know, songs ending, and maybe there's a moment where you know, a voice track could come up and present something like, you know, Sonos is a great example of that. And they use our system for their built-in Sonos radio platform, where you'll actually hear a voice that comes up. If you're listening to their classic rock station, Rock Pantheon, you'll hear a voice that comes up and says, you know, epic listening, Rock Pantheon, only on Sonos. They've got hundreds and hundreds, thousands actually in their system. The AI will select the right one for the moment based on the time, volume, energy level, and based on how the scheduling works, whether or not it should be there, it will make those content selections and present them perfectly in terms of timing and placement. But, uh, but we don't have anything to do with the music itself. I saw something about volume leveling. So I assume what that means is you're leveling against the music content. You're leveling what you present against that content, right? Yeah. So, so a great a great song pairing. Okay, let's take any two songs. I can't think of one. I don't know. You know, ACDC's Back in Black into Stairway to Heaven. There we go. You can kind of imagine those two songs in your head. Those songs were recorded, you know, eight years, nine years apart from each other, maybe 10 years apart. So, so Back in Black is actually going to sound louder if we don't do something about it. So you can envision what the AI has to do. First thing it has to do is it has to calculate the placement of those two songs next to each other down to the thousandth of a second. So as Back in Black is fading out and that great Angus Young guitar solo is starting to fade into infinity, you, there's a moment in time 
where the acoustic guitar of Stairway to Heaven is going to sound right when it starts. And they're going to be playing at the same time at some point. Right now, if it were a rock track coming in, it might start much earlier in the process. But Stairway to Heaven starts really elegantly with a light acoustic guitar. So it'll probably go long, you know, the AI will choose it longer in the fade out. It does have to, it might even, by the way, force fades there, uh, the back in black even faster so that the Stairway to Heaven is more recognizable even quicker. But the, the relative volumes next to each other have to be even or it's going to sound terrible. Broadcast radio has managed that through the years by slamming everything through big compressors. This is a company called Orban that makes these really great multiband compressors. And it's what makes radio sound so great. And it just levels the volume automatically. In the streaming music services, you don't really have that opportunity. And so what we do is pre-process the average volume, the average perceived relative volume. And then we adjust each of those songs next to each other to make sure it sounds pretty even. And what you get as an output is not just a great segue, which is what we focus on, but it's also a really consistent listening experience, which we think is super important to the ultimate result. It's funny, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was a salesman for a company called Everything Audio, sold audio gear. I was the broadcast guy. So I would go to all these radio stations and usually I'd get a program director that would take me in the back room and show me what their signal chain was. And we have this compressor going into this one, this one. So then I go to another radio station and I'd be grilled intently. Well, what does KMET have? What do they use? Because it was all the secret sauce that they had. I guess to some degree we still have that today, but it's n not the same war as it was back then in the 80s. Yeah, it, it, radio broadcast companies still to this day believe that the thing that comes out of the speaker really matters. I think the digital services are starting to figure that out now. So the, the wars of the quality war, if you will, has been primarily around sonic fidelity, right? Who has the best, or I should say the least compression, right? Tidal has lossless, you know, Cobas has lossless, uh, Apple has 256K AAC. The reality is, is that that doesn't matter for two different reasons. The first is most people listen through small speakers or headphones where the qualitative differences between those codecs are indistinguishable from one another. But the other thing that's quite ironic is that in listening, in many, many listening tests that have been done, people actually preferred MP3 over lossless uh, compression like FLAC. And when, when you ask why, like why would that be? Lossless, lossless is perfect, right? Relative to its origination, origination source, it's perfect. But MP3 will distort the audio a little bit and actually create sometimes higher levels of bass, perceived bass. And as it turns out, what most customers do is they think that the more bass there is, the higher quality there is. So that type of audio fight, it's like it's for people who are true audiophiles who have big speakers and a great signal path, it makes a big difference. For the vast majority of consumers, 90% of consumers, it just doesn't. What does matter, though, are the other qualitative aspects. Like we radio, Broadcast radio never focused on sonic fidelity because they were limited by the FM band or AM band. Like they just can't do anything about it. But they are, have always been focused on the experience. And the experience for them is the combination of presentation and production quality and the signal path, which kind of creates a feel. It's not sonically perfect. It's compressed. It's limited. It's it's squeezed down, but kind of created that FM sound that was leg legendary. 
And none of the services have really picked up on that yet. I would not be surprised to see services start to gravitate from being pure in their delivery fidelity to being unique in their delivery. And that's, that's a total, that's a total shift. Like you can envision that, you know, at some point, maybe Apple and Spotify will have a different EQ curve that they'll just define for themselves that maybe they they'll let their consumers change around, but they'll say, look, this is the way we want to present it. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen over the next few years. You know, that's a question I wanted to ask you about high-resolution audio. Apple has been collecting high-res masters since, what, 2009, I think? Something like that. A long time. So I always thought that they'd be the first one to actually raise the bar on that, and they haven't. Even though other companies have come in with the high-end tier, like Tidal, for instance, Deezer, Apple hasn't done it. Do you foresee this? I guess you don't foresee it happening, given what you just told me. I listen, I love if if Apple came out with a high-end service, I'd pay for it. You know, I have title. Um uh I you know, I obviously I subscribe to almost all the services because I want to see what they're doing. But I if I listen through my giant speakers and my monoblock amps, I'm listening to title because I don't want anything to interfere with the signal chain. But that's only if I listen through those big speakers. You know, if I listen through my small speakers, I listen through any any compression codec because it doesn't fidelity wise it really doesn't make much of a difference the other challenge is is that you know it's not that economical because it's about five times the bandwidth the services have to pay and the record labels want a premium for the licenses that go along with lossless content so you end up with services that are you know 50 percent more money to add that kind of fidelity and most consumers just don't care and so i imagine for a company like apple they realize yeah one percent of their customers are going to do it but is it really worth adding $5 a month for the 1% of the customers at the expense of making a confusing product offering for the other 99% when they could just make it simple, $9.99 a month and it's all you can eat? And obviously they've done the calculus for them is like, no, it's not worth it. Where is Super Hi-Fi going? Is your intent to actually get to all the services and have your expertise used by everyone? Yeah, that's, that's our intent. Uh, that's our dream, right? Is that we're able to power as many of the next generation music experiences as can. Look, our first goal has been to just proselytize the this vision that we have, that music can't just be playlists of songs with gaps in between, that it has to be more. And whether by our influence or by happenstance, that seems to be resonating now with most of the services. They are trying different things. They realize they have to differentiate. Well, we would now like to think that our technology does the best job of allowing them to do that fast. Uh, and so, yeah, ultimately our goal is to influence the maximum number of services that we possibly can and allow them to, to have their own voice, their own brand uh, in their own unique way. You know, we can go on and on here, but I realize that you're running short on time. So let me give you one last question. What is the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? Oh, wow. I, I guess if there's one, it's that focus matters. You know, I, I had a, uh, you know, when we left Virgin and before Super Hi-Fi, we had basically a general purposes digital agency. And we got to do a lot of music stuff, but we did anything, right? If you came to us as a big company and you were like, hey, I want digital transformation, like, 
you know, I mentioned National Geographic, Johnson & Johnson. I mean, one of them is a medical sciences company and one of them is a nature pictures company. And, and somehow we got roped into doing those and we were really appreciative. But we were never absolutely an expert on any, right? We, we were really good at delivering. That's why people hired us because our word of mouth was that we would bust through any wall and kill ourselves and anybody else in our way to make sure that we delivered on what our customers hired us to do. But you know, it didn't allow us to really focus. I had had a conversation with a friend of mine a few years ago, really, really successful guy in the, in the media space, in the television and, and uh, movie space. And he told me, he relayed a story to me. He said he was, on a, he was on a plane and he was flying back from New York. He was in first class. And there was a guy sitting next to him that they got to talking. And, you know, the guy asked what he do. And he's like, I do this for this, you know, he runs a studio. And, and he asked the other guy. And it turns out the other guy ran a company that booked hotels for touring rock bands. That is all he did. And they started talking about it and they got really into it. And he didn't book airplane travel. He didn't book tour buses. He didn't book restaurants. He didn't book anything. No hotels. None of the stuff that goes along with it. I'm sorry. All, just, just the hotels. None of the other stuff that goes along with it. All he did was hotels for rock bands and he was extremely successful. And the reason why the guy shared with my friend is because when you're a touring band and you want somebody to book your hotels, you go to the person that is better than anybody else on earth at booking hotels for rock bands. And so he booked them all for everyone and was wildly successful because of it. And when he relayed me the story, I remember feeling a sense of almost jealousy because I couldn't tell you at the time what we were the best at. We certainly had done more digital music development than probably anybody else at the time. But, you know, I was also spending 10 hours a day, uh, you know, or whatever it was, travel, or, or traveling to Australia multiple times a year to, to launch a platform for that Nat Geo company. Or we would travel to Abu Dhabi because we were doing work for Sky Arabia or any of these other things. And I'll tell you, I don't know anything about Arabic TV. Um, I can just tell you how to get digital products live. I don't know much about nature pictures. Um, I don't really know much about diabetes except what I learned during the process of developing that platform. But what I can tell you today, thanks to that kind of piece of business wisdom that I ultimately end, ended up listening to, is that there's probably nobody else uh, other than us as a team that knows more about differentiated listening experiences, AI-based music transitions and content curation, and I don't know that many people who have the benefit of being able to talk to as many music, digital music companies as we do about their vision for the future. And that, that is so enjoyable to us. It is, it is such a, a delight to be able to talk to these people over and over again about different ideas that they have about the future of music listening. And it's allowed us to really focus in on one platform that we're now able to sell over and over again, rather than to just kind of be very opportunistic. And so, yeah, coming full circle back to your question, um, and then I have to run, it's, I'd say that the best business advice that I've ever gotten was to focus on one thing and to learn to do it extremely well. You can find out more about Zach and Super Hi-Fi at superhifi.com. That's superhifi, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, 
TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.